Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF podcast. Now, spare a thought for the grassroots independent music venues this week. It's tough enough to survive at the best of times, what with residential developments triggering noise abatement orders, increased competition and high business rates, landlords that sell off the premises underneath your feet, and the incredibly low margins. Music venues everywhere are shutting down, but with increased restrictions on public gatherings right now and legitimate concerns about the health implications of a night out in an enclosed space, it's an even tougher domain than ever to keep your head above the water. And yet music venues are arguably the lifeblood and the R&D department of the music industry, and at a time when new ideas and fresh energy are probably needed most. Beverly Wittrick runs the UK's Music Venue Trust, and she's doing what she can to make running a grassroots music venue, if not actually profitable, then at the very least, sustainable. To talk about some of the challenges and some of the successes, here's Beverly Wittrick. Enjoy. Beverly Wittrick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. You are Strategic Director for the Music Venues Trust. Okay, let's start with what's a Music Venues Trust. Okay, the Music Venue Trust is a charity which um, covers the whole of the UK and it was specifically created in 2014 to protect, secure and improve the grassroots music venues of the UK. Mm-hmm. To what end? Um, well, largely because grassroots music venues historically have had a certain amount of churn, you know, venues would close, new ones would open. And it became very obvious over a period of years that more venues were closing and new ones were not really opening anymore. Mm -hmm. And that really creates quite substantial problems for the music industry as a whole, as well as leaving real holes in provision for people to access live music in their local area. So the reason the charity was specifically created was that it was the idea of uh, Mark David, who's our CEO, who co-owns a venue Mm -hmm. in a small town. And he and his business partner, Jason, were talking about what would happen to the venue if they decided they didn't want to run it anymore. And they became very aware that the answer was it would be sold and turned into a restaurant or it would be knocked down and redeveloped as flats Mm -hmm. because you can't really sell a music venue as a going concern anymore because can't make any money running a grassroots music venue and being quite unhappy with that because basically the venue is kind of their retirement fund okay and they have children they decided that something really needed to be done and nobody else was going to do it Mm. so maybe they should do it so it was mark's idea to set up an organization that could work on behalf of grassroots music venues, tackle some of the problems that were leading to the closures, try and lobby for better conditions for them. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I thought it was a really interesting concept, so I helped him research it. And that led to an organisation being formed. And then we applied for some money from the Arts Council to host a meeting to bring people together to talk about whether they all liked the idea or whether it was just, you know, a small group of us. And I've been running the charity ever since. Right. Okay, so I'm going to start with the, the obviously the dumb question. Why is it good that there are local grassroots music venues? Okay, that one's quite easily explained. A grassroots music venue is 
a social, cultural and economic hub within a town or a city or sometimes even a village. They are the places that creative people will naturally gravitate towards. They are the places that if somebody is an aspiring musician, that they can aim to play there. It's a place that musicians can hone their craft, that they can first connect with audiences and that they can meet other people that either are going to influence their lives creatively, socially, sometimes professionally. I mean, obviously an awful lot of musicians that play in venues are not going to end up as professional musicians. Mm -hmm. But the idea of grassroots music venues being in smaller towns and cities as well as the big cities means that you don't have to think, oh, when I grow up, I'll move to Manchester or I'll move to London or whatever, if you dream of doing something in music. The way that the UK has flourished for decades, rather organically and very fortuitously, is that we've always been really good at providing opportunities across the country. Mm -hmm. And although there is a kind of fairly natural gravitation as people's aspirations and careers develop towards larger cities where there are more resources a lot of successful musicians come from quite small towns or you know places that you wouldn't necessarily go oh that's a hub for music and a lot of that is courtesy of the grassroots music venues in which they first played is that getting harder i mean i know yes. things like university circuits <laughs> <laughs> i can't guess the, the answer to the question but i mean things like university circuits uh, are, are less prominent now Absolutely. i guess and you know that sort of uh, touring between smaller towns i guess is is uh, less and less prominent but uh, i mean to what extent are the venues disappearing it's quite a complex picture um, because there are quite a lot of reasons why venues close. But yes, there have been major changes, both in terms of what impacts directly on the venues themselves in local areas, and particularly with people moving into town and city centres. So, you know, what, what used to be an area where everybody finished work at 5.30 or 6, so the venue was pretty safe to do its thing, mm -hmm. now is having flats built in it, and so there are neighbours tut tutting at any noise that might disturb their sleep, even though they weren't there before. Sure. Um, so there's lots of kind of social factors like that. But yeah, absolutely, the industry has changed as well. So in the past, there was a lot of label support for fledgling artists to tour extensively, quite often to these smaller towns and these small venues and really build audiences and, you know, build their craft on the way. That tour support has more or less disappeared and that has definitely impacted on the available money to both artists and venues, to be honest, to sustain the circuit. So one of the things we say at Music Venue Trust quite a lot is nobody set out to close the nation's grassroots music venues, but it's kind of been a coincidence of lots of other policies sure. that have impacted. And for quite a long time, nobody really took any notice of the pattern or thought it was a problem. Right. And as soon as two or three sort of initiatives projects started talking about it and started to build awareness of it, people sort of went, well, of course, this is a problem. So actually, a few artists were sounding alarms. But mm. really, what I would say is what happened in quite close proximity is in early 2014, Independent Venue Week first started, which is a project specifically designed to shine a light on the brilliant things that grassroots music venues do. Yeah. And it's a one-week focus on 
these are the venues, they're great, you can go and have an amazing time there, connect with people socially, see great artists, and you might see somebody who in the future will be huge and you saw them in a room with 30 other people. Yeah. So that started, and also then Music Venue Trust came along very soon after that and started talking about, yes, venues are great, but these are the challenges. Mm-hmm. So I think between those two projects, we started to build some media awareness and the conversation started to be had that we obviously then we've built on and people have started to see that these little changes and these things that were happening were adding up to something that actually ultimately would have an impact on the whole music industry. Because if you take out the grassroots, you've got no place for the artists of the future to develop. Is the distinction between independent grassroots music venues and, I guess, big music venues the same as the distinction between, say, independent cinemas and multiplexes, or is it a kind of more complex relationship? I mean, where do you draw the line? It, it is a complex relationship because we, certainly Music Venue Trust, don't say you have to be this capacity mm-hmm. to be a grassroots music venue. So take, for example, Roundhouse in London is a grassroots music venue because they're actually very focused on artist development and a lot of work they do. But, of course, it's also a world-class, bigger concert hall where they get quite big artists. So I guess the question is more, who would you say no to? Um, that's a good question, and we have had some people apply to join our Music Venues Alliance that we looked at them and gone, you really are not a grassroots music venue. And to be honest, they tend to be – well, we did have one the other week who they were called Something Something Arena. Right. Okay. <laughs> and – I'm afraid I said, if you choose to call yourself an arena, you really should look at joining the National Arenas Association, not the Music Venue Trust, because you haven't called yourself venue, you've called yourself arena. Yeah. So you've kind of self-designated as not being a grassroots music venue. And presumably you've got a large corporate in the title as well. Well, no, they didn't, funnily enough. I'm not quite, you know, it was one of those, hmm. But I I do think self-identification does come into it. And the other one that we've had is is places that are obviously like function venues. Mm. We host weddings and bands play. That's lovely, but you're not nurturing artists and, you know, your focus is not on the music. Yeah. Your focus is on making money and music is part of that. That's not a grassroots music venue. Right. And by, I guess, extension of that is the focus on not making money by supporting artists is what makes you a grassroots music <laughs> venue. <laughs> well, it would be lovely if they made money. But no, we are absolutely not against people trying to make money, mm-hmm. obviously. Sure. But our number crunching suggests it's pretty much impossible to make money if your venue is less than 400 capacity through putting on music alone. How do you tell the story at a policy level that these things are incredibly value and yes, they make no money at all? It's actually by drawing the parallels with other creative spaces. Um, A big part of why this project really spoke to me is I have a background in arts and culture. I worked in arts development And one of the things that really started to bother me quite early on in that was when I went to work somewhere in the arts development field, I'd be told, you know, this is the theatre, this is the arts centre, this is the art gallery. And I'd say, okay, and what what other creative spaces are there? You know, where does where does music happen? Where does film happen? I'd be like, well, there's cinema. And I'd be like, yeah, and music. And oh, well, you know, there's this venue down the bottom of the town, but, you know, and a shrug of the shoulders and it'd be like, Okay, so what do they do? Well, you know, put on noisy bands. And it was talked about in such a dismissively different way. It wasn't like a proper arts venue. But actually, a lot of the time, there's more art going on in 
what are quite often viewed as commercial venues Mm -hmm. than the subsidised arts centre or the theatres. So seeking cultural parity is a big part of what's at the heart of Music Venue Trust work. We want the grassroots music venues to be recognised as being just as culturally important. And that's where the argument then comes in. The reason they don't make any money is a bit like the arts centre or the theatre. You're not expecting those places to make money. You're going to subsidise them because you see what they do is culturally and socially important. So why is the music venue different? And a lot of the time... Certainly in the UK, not always in other European countries, but certainly in the UK, grassroots music venues are largely seen as bars with a bit of music. Right. And my argument is, have you ever been in a theatre or an arts centre that didn't have a bar? Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And is the perception shared, is that perception shared amongst the owners of venues? No. The owners, well, I suppose that's an interesting one because... They're an interesting bunch. Mm -hmm. I would say that a typical grassroots music venue owner or manager would be best typified by the word maverick. Okay. Because if you weren't, you probably wouldn't be running one. And so some of them would not like to be seen as being like art spaces that, you know, the council had an interest in or, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas other them are absolutely, yes, we're equal to that arts centre, but they don't treat us like that. Mm. And so it varies wildly. You know, we we have over 640 members across the UK. And so within that, you're going to get all types of styles of different venues. Some of them are more commercially minded. Mm. However, what doesn't really change is if it's a grassroots venue, even if they're commercially or business minded, it's not the music that's making them their money. It's the other things they do. Right. So they've constructed a model to float their venue that allows them to put on developing artists. And they may be paying that out of club nights. They may be putting on tribute artists or, you know, the occasional much bigger artists that they can put a higher ticket price on. Mm -hmm. They might show films. They may well do food. They almost certainly got a great bar, but then people are drinking less alcohol, particularly young people. Right. So it is no longer possible to subsidise all your music off your bar takings because we are not in the 70s and 80s anymore. Right, but to a certain extent, um, it sounds like they're making money because of the music rather than from the music. That goes back to the business model idea. And one of the things about our definition of a grassroots music venue is about intent. What do the people running the venue believe they're doing it for? Mm Mm-hmm. We would say a grassroots music venue is run by people who do it because of the music and then find ways to make that happen. Sure. If you look at their socials, if you look at their online presence and it's all about how great their burgers are, they're probably not a grassroots music venue. Right. And so if it's an eatery or a pub that also has music in the hope it might bring a few more punters to buy more burgers or buy more pints, it's not a grassroots music venue. It's a pub with some music. To what extent do you think of this as part of the music industry? Oh, it's definitely part of the music industry. What what we think is it's the research and development unit of the music industry, and that also raises the question of why are they not investing in it? Hmm. Because in most other industries, the takings from the top subsidise the research and development of the bottom. And so we actually launched um, a year and a bit ago something called the Pipeline Investment Fund, to try and persuade the more moneyed bits of the music industry that it's really about time they started investing in grassroots music venues. Hmm. And how's that getting on? It's 
Um, had some traction. Uh-huh. I think what I would say is many people agree with the concept. Yeah. Monetizing the concept is more challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, we have definitely had some movement on that. And not only did Arts Council England launch a grassroots venues and promoters fund last year, but at the same time as we announced that to the public, we were able to announce that we were having um, financial support from AEG and from Ticketmaster and that Live Nation have pledged to um, donate to Music Venue Trust for grassroots music venues some of their apprenticeship levy, which is about training up music professionals of the future. Hmm. So that is tantamount to another support mechanism, even though it's nice cash but it is you know that there are lots of initiatives being looked at at ways that this might function Mm -hmm. i mean obviously we need much more money but it's a start the dialogue's definitely there and the conversation has been through lots of permutations about you know a percentage from every ticket in arena level or more possibly going down to the grassroots but that's a tricky bit because then the argument is well out of whose cut of the ticket does that percentage sure, come? Sure, sure. But you've got a charity status, is that correct? We do, yes. We set up as a charity right from the start. And that was for a very particular reason, which I haven't even mentioned yet, mm-hmm. which is that the reason we're called Music Venue Trust is the long-term goal is actually to be like the National Trust for music venues. What we would really like to do is we would like to buy some of the venues huh. and hold them in the charity and charge a peppercorn rent so that they stayed as music venues in perpetuity. Because one of the major challenges for grassroots music venues is most of them are not owned by the operators. They're almost all owned by landlords. And so they're rented. And they're rented. And so the rent and rates go up and up and up, Mm -hmm. subject to market forces. And of course, your takings don't go up at all. No, and market forces also mean that when the place is gentrified and there are new flats there, yeah, it's, it's, that's an interesting approach to it and quite far-sighted, I think. Well, and increasingly, we're also seeing venues being sold out from under the tenants mm-hmm. because the person who owns the building absolutely has the right to sell it for something else. Right. And so that has happened a few times recently where the venue has disappeared because the landlords just said, this building's worth a lot to me as bricks and mortar. And yeah, I'm sorry you're the one in it, but that's not my interest. Right. You said before that uh, the closure of all these venues has been in large part to sort of a sort of an accident of a series of policies, mm-hmm. but it's also been an accident of a, a lack of policies. Like, yes. for instance, things like uh, sound proofing within uh, residential areas. Are there other things that are affecting this as well that should have been thought of? Well, any sort of cultural recognition would have made life so much better. I mean, as I say, the the very fact that I think all our towns and city centres in the UK has basically just been seen as free market economy mm. actually now is being evidenced as not being very far-sighted in that the idea that we would always have vibrant towns and cities just because right. is absolutely not true in 2020 and and you know now people are starting to panic about shops closing and you know cafes closing and the venues are possibly already closed and you know who can afford to be in a town and city center now right and yet if there's nothing there 
and it just becomes residential, how is that not a suburb? And so we're in a kind of really bizarre moment in time where all the things that our towns and city centres historically have been are actually quite endangered. And at the same time, people are supposedly moving there because everything's convenient and on your doorstep and, you know, vibrant. And yet everything you're moving there for may be disappearing. Because you moved there. Because you moved there. But, but I mean, you know, I, I'm talking UK, but of course it's not special to the UK. This is happening all over the world. Mm. And Music Venue Trust actually has relationships in an awful lot of other countries where we share resources and stories and, you know. Who's done it well? Who's done it well? Um, different things have worked well in different places. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, the first place where they talked about agent of change and the fact that the person creating the change that can impact on the venue should be responsible for that. That was actually in Australia. Right. Tell me about agent of change as a phrase, because you say it like it's a concept that needs to be established. Yeah, well, it's it's a really interesting one because we very much brought the phrase over from Australia where it had been a big part of music campaigning. And to a certain extent, it's kind of been hijacked and taken to mean various different things now. But, but our definition of agent of change is very much to do with town and city planning and the agent of change is usually a developer in the context of planning. So it's somebody that comes in and builds a new building nearby to something that already exists right. and in doing so changes the conditions by which the existing thing should operate. Right. Whose fault is it that this changed? This the We don't necessarily like to say it's anyone's fault because Music Venue Trust is absolutely not against residential development in town and city centres. No, what... but you're against it affecting negatively the venues. Yes, because we are against bad development. Right. And what happened over quite a long period of time was there was absolutely no legislation or even policy to say that a developer had any responsibility for anything in the area in which they were building. So a developer could basically build a block of flats anywhere mm -hmm. and the buyers or the tenants would move in and then say, this flat is not livable because the noise coming from X means that I can't sleep at night and X could then be served a noise abatement notice and potentially shut down. Sure. And our argument is... You should be able to build good quality residential accommodation pretty much anywhere because the technology exists. So what you need to do is you need to look very carefully at what's around you and analyse what is needed in order to make that suitable for habitation. Mm. And if you're near a venue, you need to soundproof the flats because if that venue has been there before and someone chooses to build next to it, it is the developer's responsibility to make it fit to live in. And also, I guess, I mean, to a large extent, if you think of the city itself, that will spend a lot of money on greening spaces and on making things look good. Should uh, policymakers and, and city councils and so on be thinking about what cities should sound like? Yes, they absolutely should. not And in fact, really interestingly, um, the Welsh government's planning policies talks about soundscapes. Mm -hmm. I think it's the first part of the UK that starts to, to look at that and they're developing further work on that. So I do believe that good planning should take in all those elements of life in the modern world. Um, it's very much at different points of development in different places. You know, you said earlier, who's got good examples of things? Well, 
we're still kind of working on that because there's a lot of sharing of information going on, but nobody's hit on the right formula yet. Right. So there, there are a lot of discussions about, you know, what makes a music city, which is a music positive, friendly city. I mean, in planning terms, there are examples like in Montreal, for example, when they developed what would be the entertainment district, the residential accommodation they put in, there was a stipulation that you could only live there if you signed something saying you accepted that this was the entertainment area. Right. So there might be noise. So basically a load of creatives moved into that area because they could live with the idea that it was a pro-creative area and sometimes that means there's some noise. Sure. So, you know, th there are interesting examples, but yes, in an ideal world, planning policy would take in all these things, but we don't live in an ideal world. So it's not just music venues that get impacted. So, for example, we are good friends with the Theatres Trust, and I do know that um, a recent development behind one of the West End theatres did involve residents complaining that there was loading out from the stage doors at the end of the night. Now, wouldn't you just hope if you were going to live behind a fairly famous theatre that you might realise that those big stage doors are there for a reason? Yeah, I mean, residents are renowned for complaining about things. I lived in a building once where people complained there was a tree next to them and the birds were too noisy in the morning in the middle of the city centre. So <laughs> I guess, you know, you're going to get people who are going to complain about anything. But like, about places doing it well. Is Britain particularly notable for its closure of music venues? I think Britain's been notable for the closure because it has so many. Right. So it started with a lot, so it's closed yeah. a lot. I think what's become really obvious, particularly through the conversations, with, we're part of the live DMA European network of other venue bodies. Um, has to be said, Music Venue Trust is both the smallest organisation and has the largest membership. Wow. So that kind of already tells you something about the UK and the fact we only represent grassroots music venues, whereas most of the other members of Live DMA represent a range of venue and festival sizes, uh -huh. but they have fewer members than we do. So that kind of tells you about how prevalent music has been in the UK, which is both a blessing and a curse, because I do firmly believe that part of the problem here has been that historically the UK has been a world leader in music. And I think that leads a lot of people, particularly politicians, to believe that if you just leave it alone, it will carry on flourishing. Right. And actually, we've really reached the point now where a lot of things are stacking up against it. But in addition, other countries are actually investing in their grassroots and their music development. Well, the creative industries as a whole. And therefore, if the UK does not do that, it's disadvantaged in two ways. One, by the laissez-faire attitude, and two, by the fact that, in contrast, mm -hmm. everyone around us is proactively supporting the development. And yes, I'd absolutely agree, it is the creative industries. Film has had a slightly special position in that there's been government support for film across the whole of the UK. Sure. Because... For some reason, they've understood film in a way they haven't understood the rest of the creative industries. But, yeah, it's quite alarming to watch the kind of support and subsidy that is developing in most of the rest of Europe and contrast that with what just isn't here. Hmm. Is there anything going on in the realm of uh, technological development to support um, 
uh, small independent uh, venues? Is it, I mean, is it still, you know, a, a paper ticket at the door or is there still, you know, queues at the bar or, or, or has it kind of moved on from there and people are kind of actually uh, trying to um, disrupt venues? That are many, many, many things in development. We, we are approached weekly by right. app developers and technology developers, most of whom think they've got the thing that will save venues. And we have to actually say, sounds like a great product, but it's probably not going to save all the venues because it doesn't actually tackle the problems we know about. Mm -hmm. That said, there are obviously some great things coming in. So yeah, on ticketing, it's completely changing. You know, there are still venues that you're going to go in and get your hands stamped and you are going to have a paper ticket. But increasingly, you know, there there are tickets on phones or, you know, whatever else. And that is very much developed. It's a very competitive field, actually, ticketing mm -hmm. at any level in the UK. So there's lots of exciting stuff happening there. Um, yeah, bars and tills, that's changed quite a lot as well. Obviously, sure. the fact that... Money handling has decreased substantially, mm -hmm. has changed a great deal. Um, and I think there's still more change to come there. The queuing, that's an interesting one. I think most venues would like to see more queues at the bar. I think actually one of the changes that has been to the detriment of venues is that increasingly people meet somewhere else for a drink before they come to the venue they come and see the gig and then they go somewhere else for a drink after the gig. Right. And so actually the bar take in the venue is quite small compared to where someone used to go for a whole night out there. And that's actually to do with changes in licensing law and the fact that there are many places that have late licenses now. So people will go to a grassroots music venue for the gig, but their evening will involve a range of venues. And that's a bit of a problem to try and tackle. Mm particularly when there are, you know, pub chains that offer very cheap drinks. Sure. That a small venue can absolutely not because it can't get that kind of brewery deal. I can't think of a nicer way to ask this, so I'll just ask <laughs> it. Is venue ownership an ageing population? Yes, it is. Absolutely, and succession is something that we also are examining and looking at. I mean... You know, to be honest, as I said, this this came from Mark and Jason at Tunbridge Wells Forum, who are both in their 50s now. Mm -hmm. And I don't think ever imagined they would be running the venue in their 50s. You know, when when they and a couple of mates decided to open a venue in their 20s, they definitely thought that was a young person's game. So I would say that, yes, the, the management of venues is ageing. However, what's very encouraging is that there's an awful lot of mentoring and training going on within venues. You know, there's there's a real infrastructure there. And a pathway, I guess. Yeah, there's a pathway. I guess the potential pitfall within that is quite often young people come in very enthusiastic, work in venues, and then go off and do something else in the industry because there's more money in doing that bit than there sure. is in staying in the venue. Yeah. So we see a lot of bright young people come up and they work in the venues for a while and then they go off and they're an agent or and a promoter. Presumably they or, do the social media and PR <laughs> side of things rather than that. Can be, yeah. Um, so that's definitely a challenge and, you know, is, it's an understandable challenge when it's hard to make a good living out of running a venue. Is that affecting also the curation and, and programming of these venues? I don't think it's necessarily affecting that because it quite often 
is the younger team that will do that. You know, the, the person running the venue is probably not the major booker. Okay. That it's a really tricky question. I mean, we talk often about the fact that lots of our venues are run by one or two people, but then they quite often have a, you know, a team of part-timers or volunteers that are actually facilitating that venue happening. Well, it's a bit like Music Venue Trust. I mean, we've only got two full-time staff mm-hmm. and two part-time, but we also have a whole bunch of consultants and gurus and, you know, other people that help run the, the charity. But as a, as an actual core, we're teeny tiny. Sure. Um, because it's, you know, that's the money we've got to run it. So I think venue, venues kind of mirror the charity itself. So how did it end up at your feet to, to be doing this? I mean, I know you said that uh, that you identified it as a good idea and mm. so you got involved, but there's a backstory to that that led you there. What what was that? Um, probably that it was the the best project to get my teeth into that had come for a while. Right. You were looking for a project? Yeah. Well, no, no I was because I, I kind of took a bit of a break to raise children. And uh, moved to another country and, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> <laughs> because you're not, you're not based in the UK. I'm not personally, no. No, but you, you're invested in the UK. You have uh, links to the UK. Oh, well, very much. You know, I get into the most fascinating conversations about the fact that I live in Barcelona, but I haven't entirely left. I just happen to be living somewhere else at the moment. You right. know, it, I think there are an awful lot of people like me. You, you don't leave everything behind and never come back, you know. <laughs> right, yeah. In fact, you probably come back quite a lot. I Well, yes, obviously, because, you know, having a physical presence at events is quite important. Advocacy mm-hmm. for what we do is more effective in person. Sure. So I have to ask the B word. Um, you know, how has Brexit affected um, things like bands performing in small venues? Is it... I mean, is it a is it a a space for international touring bands, or are we not at that level? Well, it's a really interesting question because the immediate response to that is that it should affect the grassroots venues less than bigger venues. Mm-hmm. However, there is a certain proportion of the programming of grassroots music venues that that would be bands from Europe. And, you know, in some of our venues, bands from America or Canada or Australia or anywhere else. So there absolutely is an international element to the programming. There are certainly a lot of Europeans working in venues in the UK. Right. Because the creative industries here are very attractive to non-British people. So, of course, why wouldn't you want to come here where so much internationally important music has started from? Sure. So, yeah, there's definitely a concern about staff. Um, And more than that, the impact is likely to be on the very talent that we have at a core of our venues, whose ability to play beyond the UK to develop their craft is absolutely going to be impacted. Sure. I mean, you know, this year we're, we're pretty much okay. There are a few narky border guards that, you know, are holding people up. But technically, you can still do everything up until the end of December that you've previously been able to do. However, after that, it's going to be completely different. And if you are a small band from Leicester mm-hmm. who dreams of touring France and Germany and the Netherlands and, you know, why wouldn't you? Yeah. That is going to become a whole lot more challenging unless you have money behind you. 
And I think for a lot of us, the concern for the whole of the creative industries having been very much overlooked in all the discussions about the impact of Brexit is it will become even more the preserve of people with moneyed backgrounds and that will completely change the UK's contribution to the world culture scene. You know, part of the UK's contribution has always been that it's it's people from all parts of the UK, from all levels of society and that's what's made our, our cultural contribution so rich. Mm. And to see that narrowed down to, you know, if you're fortunate enough that your parents got some money to back you, you might be able to do it, yeah. would be a tragedy. On the flip side, there's a sort of a received wisdom that the British music scene in the late 70s and early 80s was so fertile simply because it was so tough and people just had to kick against, you know, <laughs> what was going on in the establishment and, you know, we get punk and we get, you know, all these, all these movements. Are we in that sort of same phase again, do you think? No, because you can no longer sign on the dole. Right. And a huge amount of the fertility of the creativity in the 70s and 80s came from people that were technically unemployed but actually were developing their craft. Hmm. That no longer exists. If you sign on as looking for work, you have to prove you're looking for work. You do not have that window of opportunity to act or write or play. or It just doesn't exist. And a whole generation of artists of every art form had that cushion that has just completely disappeared so that's why we're so fearful for the future because that kind of tough but also golden age of creativity doesn't exist now does that also make us nostalgic in in a large way? Like, for instance, with music venues, uh, I know that people would go. Well, this is this furniture shop is where this uh, where the Beatles played in Birmingham, or this uh, you know betting facility is where Duran Duran had their practice rooms. Is that kind of um, you know the sort of music tourism another reason to keep venues around so that people can go and see them as they were? That is a really interesting question, and. From Music Venue Trust's point of view, the answer for me would be we are not a heritage organisation. Okay. Even though you want to be a National Trust for Music Venues? The National Trust for Music Venues is about retaining venues to be the venues of now and the future. It's about their workability and their use. We don't want to retain music venues as museums because that's a whole different sector. And although I absolutely can understand why people might be interested in that we are focused on the places that artists continue to develop and continue to have opportunities so this question has actually come up several times over the last few years we have little sympathy for a venue that has a wonderful history but isn't fit for purpose and it's also actually why we fought so hard for funding for the venues and why the Arts Council England Fund was such a triumph because it was the first time that public funding became available to actually invest in the physical infrastructure of a building. Mm. Although to get that funding, you have to absolutely show how artists and audiences will benefit from the investment. You can apply for funding to upgrade your sound and lighting or make your building more accessible or putting in a gender neutral toilet or paint the walls or, you know, all right. those things that, our venues have been drastically underinvested for decades now. And while people of my generation might find a certain romance in that, my daughters don't see it that way. They think they're a bit yucky. Yeah. yeah. And 
The other challenge there is very much that many venues now are not able to be open to young audiences because of licensing conditions. So if young people grow up going to see big pop artists, for example, in an arena or a high-grade big venue, when they're old enough to then go into a grassroots music venue and they go there and it's a bit grimy and a bit smelly and a bit sticky and the sound and lighting's not so good... They don't see that as romantic. They just see it as a bit shit. Yeah, it's just disappointing. Yes. So is part of your role to go around these venues and say, do better? Uh, No, because I think most of the venues already know that they could do a lot better were they able to get the ducks in a row. Most of them aspire to do better and they're just being thwarted by the lack of money or by external pressures being put on them. I can't think of a single venue within our network that will sit there and go, no, I'm really happy with my venue being a bit shit. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But things like accessibility, like, uh, you know, gender inclusion, like all all the things that you would like to be able to say that, you know, all of your members are really keen advocates of Mm -hmm. and, and supporters of and are working hard towards, I suspect that's not true of all of them. It's not true of all of them because some of them don't really know about it yet. And I think... A big part of why Music Venue Trust was absolutely needed was that venues very much operate in isolation or small clusters. And until we came along, until we had our first Venues Day in December 2014, most venues went to no music industry events. They weren't networking. They were doing their own thing in their own locality and were fairly, apart from obviously iconic venues like night and day in Manchester or the 100 Club in London, they weren't really that aware of what other venues they were or what they were like or because they were getting on doing their own thing. Right. What something like Music Venue Trust has enabled is um, discussions about different ways of doing things, different models. So we have venues who are now community share offers or cooperatives. A lot of our venues have managed to go over to being community interest companies. So they've got the bit that puts on the music now registered as a not-for-profit and the bar is the profit-making business side by side. And what that means is they can actually operate in a different way because it enables them to apply for funding or rebates on various things and stuff. So that's all started with looking at other venues that are doing it and going, well, hang on, I could do that. Right. So on things like women's safety or accessibility or how welcoming you are to diverse communities – Obviously, those issues are more important to some venues than others. But that's sometimes just because venue A may never have thought about it until they have a conversation with venue B. Right. Do you have a sort of a best practice guide that you can point people to? We don't have best practice guide at the moment. It's something that we're working on. What we do have are two open source books which were launched last summer and they're books that were commissioned and funded by the Mayor of London and Ticketmaster. And that enabled Music Venue Trust to employ a proper writer and a fantastic photographer. And two books were created, which are how to open a grassroots music venue, so obviously aimed at aspiring venue owners. And then the, the sister publication to that is how to run a grassroots music venue, which is aimed at those people who already have a venue who might want to re-examine what they do and see if they're things they could do better. Uh And those two guides are peppered with interviews 
of people that do run venues and wonderful photos of their quirky and individualistic venues. Um, and the books also refer to a plethora of online resources, which we update as we go along. So things change all the time, but what we now have are sort of two template documents that can refer to other things. And what we would hope is that most people interested in or already running a venue could glean some things from that that either they haven't thought of or that they could do better. Mm -hmm. And that gives them a place to go. And then if they don't find what they look there, they just ask us. Right. You know, we have a good ongoing dialogue with a lot of the members of our Music Venues Alliance, not necessarily all of them, but, you know, a lot of them. We have a venue support manager, Clara, who runs our emergency response service and, you know, is the first port of call if a venue is in trouble or needs advice or something. They contact Clara and she can put them in touch with one of our gurus okay. who can give them expert advice about something. So, you know, we're very much at the heart of a community and we're working on more resources. Right. It sounds like you're dealing in an area that has an awful lot of challenges, but in order to do that, you would need to be somebody who's at least a little bit optimistic. What are you optimistic about? The people. It's the most fantastic sector in terms of just fascinating people that you meet and you know, there's an element of some days you just think, well, who in their right mind would run a grassroots music venue? And then you think, do I want to talk to people in their right mind? You know, that's a, that's a fair question. I, I'm somebody that realized quite early on that one of the main things that makes me tick is being around creative people. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily need to be creating myself, but I need to be with creative people and facilitating what they do because. I'm naturally quite an organised person, but I absolutely understand why creatives are essential to life. So I think if I can fulfil that role, then that's a useful thing for me to do. And I honestly think that some of the best people are involved in the grassroots of the music industry. Right. And so how you could be around those people, even when times are challenging and not feel optimistic... Well, I don't understand it. I'm sure other people might. But, you know, to me, there's such a wealth of greatness there. Oh, well, and the musicians as well, obviously. People only run grassroots music venues because they want to nurture musicians. So, you know, that passion for music and for people of music and about music mm -hmm. is absolutely at the centre of the whole sector. Are you slowly winning? We're certainly having some successes, yeah. Yeah, it's it's good when we win some things and we always like to take a moment to say we've done something and that's a step forward. Mm -hmm. And actually one of the the central tenets of what we've done is always to try and be a very practical organisation. So to pick campaigns that we could create movement on so that there's a forward movement of things, even though still many, many fights to have. Sure. You know, the fact that we changed Scottish planning law. We only cha changed policy in Wales and England, but it's something, you know, it's some people don't really understand the difference. So, so we often say in Scotland, you must now take into account the music venue if you build near it. Whereas in England, Wales, you should. So obviously Scotland's better. Right. But, you know, 
we can we like to play the countries off against each other. So of now course. Scotland have done that. We can come back to England and Wales and say, look what they did. Yeah. Um, we've just had news uh, in the last few weeks of business rates cuts for grassroots venues in England. So now we need to go to the Welsh Assembly and Scottish Parliament and the Northern Ireland Assembly and say, okay, look what England are doing. Do you really want your venues to be disadvantaged by not giving them the same concessions? And actually in the same week as that announcement, really something that a few people said would never happen actually did. Westminster Council, which is not necessarily the most pro-music council that you would imagine in the UK, declared that they would zero business rate the 100 Club in perpetuity. Wow. Which basically has protected the future of this iconic venue that's at the moment on its third generation of the same family that are running it. That's amazing. And I think Jeff quite hopes that Ruby might take over one day, his daughter. So, you know, it's it's a really fantastic venue and the rates were crippling. Right. He genuinely thought he was going to close so many times. So the fact that Westminster have said, right, we're not going to charge you business rates now has saved the 100 Club, which we think might be the longest operating grassroots venue in Europe. Wow. <laughs> that's, if true, that's quite a success. There are older venues, but they've had breaks. Uh-huh. We think that the the Hundred Club is the one that's operated consistently for the longest. Continuously, right? So, how will you know when you've won? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, if you go on the original intention for the charity, I guess it will be when we do actually get investment in in order to buy the the freeholds of some of the venues, and and we can firmly say that we have safeguarded a proportion Mm -hmm. of the venues but that looks like that's still some way away so yeah do you want to ask me in another five years yeah absolutely let's return and and reevaluate then in the meantime is there anything anybody listening could do if you are in well i was gonna say if you're in the uk again speaking as music venue trust if you are anywhere and you love music the best way to support a grassroots music venue is to go to it We often see petitions or hear people say how much they love a venue. If you don't actually set foot in it, if you don't actually buy tickets to go there, buy a drink when you go, take your friends with you, saying you like it isn't actually that practical and helpful. So, yeah, if you if you have venues that you love, please visit them. Please do appreciate them with your presence and your money rather than just your words, because that's the best way to sustain them. Fantastic. Beverly, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. That's Beverly Wittrick, Strategic Director of the UK Music Venue Trust, and that's the MTF podcast. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, we've had to make a couple of postponements to some upcoming MTF and Ice Labs events in Frankfurt and in Mannheim. But the most important thing is that you stay safe and healthy. We'll do the same. And in the meantime, stay up to date through the newsletter, website, Music Tech Fest on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours. These will keep coming to you each week and we'll make sure we keep it interesting. That's it for now. We'll talk soon and you have a great week. Cheers. Cheers.